you live in your body 24 seven, you know, your body and you have to be your own advocate. Uh, so when somebody is saying, "Mm, no, I don't think so. It's like, no, you need to, you need to push. Welcome to the Whiskey and Lemon Podcast. I'm your host, Alana Mercedes. And I'm your guest, Elizabeth Joy Presta. Elizabeth is a doula, and she's also the podcast host of Miraculous Mamas. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I am so excited. We have so much to dive into. But first, if you can tell the audience a little bit about yourself and something they just would not notice by looking at your Instagram. Yeah. So a little bit about me. I'm kind of a jack of all trades. I um, went to school off and on like college trying to figure out what to do with my life. Um, So I decided to get my TEFL certification to teach English overseas. And then I got my life coach certification and then my doula certification, trying to figure out what I'm doing with my life. And I found my passion in the doula work. And so that's kind of what um, I'm pouring myself into. And then I have the podcast, Miraculous Mamas, because I just wanted a way to spread more education to birthing people on what their options are and to just kind of bring community in motherhood together because there's so many different ways that you parent. There's so many different options. There's different ways to birth, to feed your child, but just wanted to bring unity um, because all of those are valid options. All of them are good options and everyone's doing the best that they can. So, um, so I started the podcast, which has been super fulfilling and something that you wouldn't know about me from looking at my Instagram is that I've been to 31 countries and most of them I backpacked on my own alone. Yeah. So, um, I, that was a very adventurous chapter in my life, which seems like many moons ago, Yeah, Um, (laughs) but yeah, that's, I guess that's something a lot of people don't know. Okay. So obviously I want to dive into the doula life and everything that comes with that, but we have to talk about this whole 31 country thing. So can you tell us a little bit more how you got started with that and just your overall experience? Yeah. So, I mean, how I got started when I was 16, I went on a mission trip to Peru and I grew up in a small town in Nebraska. So that was like a very eye opening adventure for me. Um, but at that point I just really realized I'm like, Oh my gosh, like I want to experience other cultures, other people. I want to, um, like I, I, it just fascinated me how other people lived because it just really, gives you so much perspective on your life and of your different privileges that you have compared to, um, a lot of other countries and people. So, um, I went on, I think when I was 19, then a girlfriend and I decided to backpack Europe. And, um, then I decided to go to Thailand for a while to get my certification to teach English. And that just, I mean, I just fell in love with traveling and Mm -hmm. I decided to work. I moved, my family moved to Las Vegas. So I worked in the restaurant industry for years, which allowed me to save up money, take off time and go travel. Cause I wasn't in this dedicated career or committed career job. Uh, so that's what I did for 10 years. I would save up money and go, go travel. And, um, my biggest trip, my two biggest trips, one of them, I had just gotten out of a long relationship and just really needed to leave. So I 
quit my job. I booked a one-way ticket to Africa and just had no plans. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to (laughs) do. Right. (laughs) And I just went by myself and I ended up going to 13 countries on that trip um, and met up with random people um, who I knew were traveling. I did like couch surfing, slept on people's couches. I backpacked, I hitchhiked, I stayed in hostels and just had So these are people that you knew that were also traveling and you were meeting people along the way and doing this? Both. So one of them, so like my old roommate in Vegas had taken a job in Abu Dhabi. So like I went and stayed with her for a little bit. And then a different girl I used to work with, her fiance was lived in Bali. So I went to, so I flew to Bali to like meet up with her. Um, And so I would literally just work and live as simply as I could save up as much money as I could. And then I traveled as cheaply as I could. So I didn't, there was no resorts right. involved in any of this. Right. <laughs> um, and then I'd come home and be broke and not know how I'm going to pay my bills and like get another job and do it again. So, yeah. um, and so then after that big trip, when I got home, I had a friend who had a job opportunity for us to go work at a safari lodge in Tanzania And I'm like, absolutely sign me up. So, um, I went out there for six months and it was just the most magical experience. Um, and yeah, so that was just kind of, that was like the longest I was in one place. (laughs) Um, and then the next year I took a job in Toronto and then I met my husband. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think adventure is very, much a part of my soul and like deep down Mm -hmm. a part of me. And, and although we haven't like traveled a lot lately, it's, it's still, I feel like something that, that brings out kind of the creative side of me and, um, like nature, nature's fulfilling to me. So if I can get out in nature, um, it helps kind of bring me back and ground me and, and stuff like that. So you might've just answered my next question then, because I mean, I wasn't, international, but right after I finished college, I was bouncing around kind of living with friends for a bit because I, like most people, when I was done with college, I had no idea what I was doing. My roommate moved back home and I didn't have a place that I could afford on my own. And so many people just told me, go back, move with your parents. And I'm like, nope, I'm here. Like, I have to figure this out. I'm not going back to my parents' house. Like, is that what you think essentially kept you going? Because you said you didn't have any money. You were just staying on people's couches. Like what kept you still continuing to travel amidst all of that? Because I felt like, I mean, traveling was the only option for me. It was like, I hadn't found a career that I was in love with. Like any job I had, I enjoyed. I always had good relationships with the people I worked with and who I worked for. Um, I just didn't, I was, for me, I'm like, I'm young. I'm in my twenties. I'm single. Why not? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to do this forever. And so, um, there was one point where I did stay with my parents. I think it was in between, in between one trip getting home. And before I took that job to Tanzania, I stayed with them for like six months. So yeah, I mean, it was definitely, just me wanting to, yeah, to get back out. I mean, I worked to travel. That's like the only reason I worked was so that I could travel so that I could save up money and go. Cause I'm like, what else am I going to do? Right. <laughs> and I have worked in the restaurant industry. And I would say that's one of those areas that, I mean, it wasn't a long-term goal for me either, but it was, it's one of the best ways where you can just start saving up money. It just, 
it's right, like there's yeah. moments where maybe you don't know what your income's looking like. And then there's like a massive flux at the same time. Oh so, yeah. Yeah. For sure. It ebbs and flows. Definitely. So are there any major tips that you would give to people that are looking to travel or maybe safety tips that are looking for people that are looking to travel on their own? Yeah. So I think if you're looking to travel, um, just do your research. There's so much that you can find, um, ways to travel. Cause people would always ask me, how do you afford to travel? And I'm like, well, first of all, I save all my money. I don't go shopping. I don't buy new clothes. Like I don't, like I, I don't spend okay. any money like, cause that's what I wanted to invest in. Right. But, um, you can do things as cheap or as expensive as you want. So, um, there's the flight deals, Twitter account that has a lot of stuff on it. Um, I use a lot of sky scanner and just doing research. So if I wanted to fly, let's say to Bangkok, Thailand, you don't just look at a flight to Thailand, you, cause you're going to have a layover right. in, um, either China or in Taiwan or in South Korea. So, then you look at, okay, how much would it cost me to fly to South Korea and then South Korea to here? And you kind of like look at all the different options instead of just like the first one. Cause you can like add right. different places in. Um, so okay. just do a lot of your research, look at reviews. Couch surfing is actually like a pretty safe network where you can sleep on people's couches for free, <laughs> um, which I did. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think just if you really want to go somewhere, save up money and go like traveling. So amazing. Mm -hmm. And how to do it safe is obviously like be smart. I, wherever I went, I always tried to really respect the culture. Um, like I was in Zanzibar, which is predominantly a Muslim Island and the women there, um, cover their hair and they cover, um, everything. And you would see tourists just walk around in like a tank top and shorts. And I'm like, I, to me, that felt disrespectful. So I made sure that I was covered walking around there. Right. Um, I don't want to stand out as a tourist uh, mm -hmm. in different places. So I just always try to be really respectful of the culture. Um, it's okay to have fun. You're probably going to be in mostly areas where there's a lot of other tourists anyways, but be respectful, obviously be smart um, and go, you can research places that are really safe to travel, especially alone. And as a female in Thailand's one of them, Thailand, I love Thailand so much. Um, but there's a lot of places get in like different Facebook groups for like female traveling, ask a lot of questions. Okay. And you'll get so many tips. Okay. So I wanted to segue into women's healthcare as we're talking about safety, <laughs> but before we move on out of all the places that you went to, is there one particular place where you were just obsessed with the food? Oh, um, <laughs> maybe, or maybe if there's a few, maybe more than one, but okay, I'll do two. Um, actually, um, the United Emirates, um, because I met these really cool guys from Lebanon there and okay. they took me out to eat all this Lebanese food, which I had never really had. And it was mm -hmm. amazing. I kid you not. I was in, I was there for like three weeks. I, gained like almost 10 pounds in three weeks, just oh, eating wow. all of this food. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It was like, really I, good. <laughs> yeah. It was so good. Uh -huh. Um, and then I Thai food. I love Thai food. So okay. I can eat that all the time, but yeah, I'd say those were probably the top. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. All right. So let's dive into women's healthcare. I know you're a huge advocate for this and I don't know if this kind of goes hand in hand or you can give us the breakdown of how you use that or how you 
ended up becoming a doula? What was your, what passion was driving you to get into that field? Yeah. So when I was in college, I wrote a research paper on home birth versus hospital birth. And my sister ended up having a home birth and I just kind of dove into like the statistics. And I ended up finding that the United States, uh, has a very high maternal death rate, especially compared to other high income nations. So we have a higher death rate than some second world countries. And I'm like, that's weird. Like at that point, I mean, this was my gosh, 10, 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I hadn't really thought that much about it, but I'm like, we live in America. You should be able to go to the hospital and get what you need. And that's just like, not, not the case. So, um, I decided to do more research into it. And then as my sister had her next couple of kids at home, uh, I started to look into doula work. I didn't think that midwifery was a path for me, uh, which still isn't. I don't want to go to school for four years (laughs) Um, and then take another program on top of that and do a residency. It's just not for me. Um, But I started learning about the work of doulas and doulas provide uh, educational support, physical support, and emotional support to laboring people. So I loved the fact that as a doula, you become this birthing expert, and then you just get to be there for, um, the birthing person and meet their needs emotionally, physically help them with decision-making. And you're the constant as doctors and nurses are coming and going, your midwife's coming and going. If you're at the hospital, you have someone who's constantly there with you, helping you feel safe, validating your feelings. Um, and the research shows that when you have a doula present, you're 28% less likely to have a C-section. You're way less likely to have other medical interventions. You're more like likely to have a spontaneous labor. You're way more likely to look back on your birth in a favorable manner. Um, and there's just so much research and studies. Um, you can look at the evidence-based birth. They did a whole podcast on it, but, um, they bring together all the research and studies that are done and they show the benefits of doulas. And so I was like, that sounds amazing. So I went through the program and I did my first birth in 2012 and then I did a few births and I decided to go travel again. And then I came back and just really, that was, I mean, I just started to get really passionate about women's health because I was hearing the stories from people of them not being heard. Okay. And it would just make me so angry. Like mm-hmm. I was even just listening. Oh, I was listening to an audiobook earlier and this lady's having this birthing experience and she's like, I need to push this baby out. And they're like, no, we just checked you. You're fine. You don't need to push. And she's like, I'm going to have the baby right now. And they just ignored her. So she starts having this baby and then they oh, close goodness. her leg, her legs and try to keep her shut until the doctor can come, but they weren't listening to her. And it's so infuriating that women just aren't being believed or listened to. And that's what got me like so passionate. And I'm like, how can I make a difference? And I feel like the best way that I can make a difference was by becoming a doula and helping educating women on their options, not only in birth, but just it leads into your options in healthcare in general and every other area of your life, because it starts before then. I mean, we're not believed at other things. Like I went to Mm -hmm. a doctor and I was having issues with my period 
and they couldn't find anything wrong. And I'm like, something else is wrong with me. Something else is wrong with me. And they're like, no, we'll just put you on birth control. It'll be fine. And I'm like, my body's trying to tell me something. Right. And so it took me a year and a half of finding somebody else and figuring out that there was something wrong. I had a parasite. Oh. Um, my gut was extremely inflamed. It was affecting my liver and it couldn't eliminate my excess estrogen, which was leading to it to being recycled, which is what leads to breast cancer. So I'm like, if I would have just gotten on the birth control, it would have masked those symptoms. Right. And I wouldn't have ever found the root cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just really passionate about which that alone causes its own symptoms, right? Oh, for sure. So you live in your body 24 seven, mm-hmm. you know, your body and you have to be your own advocate. Uh, so when somebody is saying, mm, no, I don't think so. It's like, no, you need to, you need to push. Mm -hmm. and advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. I definitely believe in medicine. I believe in science. I believe, um, in Western medicine. I believe in Eastern medicine. I think that there's a place for everything. Um, but you have to believe in yourself as part of the medical picture when it comes to advocating for your health. Right. Yeah. I have, I've been suffering from vertigo for about, it's been seven years and the past three years, it's just all the time now. Like it always just feels like I've had one glass of wine. So I actually just had a telehealth appointment with my doctor this morning with a different doctor. And before I can even get the words out of my symptoms, he's running down. Well, is it just anxiety? Are you depressed? Is it I'm like, that's not, you're not hearing me, you know? And I already had my notes of what I was thinking it was going to be. And that's just automatically what they run to want to start prescribing things that, like I said, just gives you a whole other, you know, I would get migraines and vertigo and then the medications they want to prescribe me cause migraines and vertigo. Like this isn't, this is what, not what I need. Mm-hmm. I know yeah. it's crazy. It, you're like, there has to be something else going on. And, and that's, right. I, I mean, I had a friend a couple of years ago who developed this huge like lump on her thyroid and she went to a couple different doctors. And one of them was basically like, we need to remove your thyroid and was like pushing her to do that. And she kept, she was like, no, there's no way. Like, and she kept, she went to like two other people. Then finally the last guy listened to her. And cause she had said she had had a surgery. They put a tube down her throat and she's like, I feel like that's what's wrong. Something with that. And so he did an exam and he's like, you're right. He's like, when they did this, they like messed something up. So basically it just was a pocket that filled up like a cyst. It had nothing to do with her thyroid, her thyroid. This other doctor was about to take out her thyroid. Right. Oh my goodness. Had nothing to even do with that. And so he was able to just drain it. And then she was fine. It never came back. Nothing. Like your own body. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you have to keep pushing for it. But we see these, um, healthcare providers as like authoritarian figures, authoritative figures. And like, Mm -hmm. they know what's best and they do know way more than we do when it comes to medical stuff, they've studied it. Uh, Mm -hmm. but you also, you have a say in your healthcare too, like informed consent is so important, uh, and to be completely heard because the body is connected. You can diagnose like one area, like my hormones, my periods were being caused by a gut issue. It had nothing to do with even my hormones. My hormones were off, but it was all because of my gut. Mm -hmm. So uh, everything is connected in some way. So it might take you going to a few different people 
to mm. really dig down and figure it out. Um, the problem with that though, too, is that a lot of people don't have that luxury. Um, Very true. Healthcare in our country is not accessible to everybody. And that's where it's also. Contrary to popular belief, right? (laughs) Very much. Contrary to what I thought. I mean, I was seven (laughs) years without health insurance. Um, I didn't have one from a job and I was traveling and I'm like, I don't need it. Yeah. I think I might've had somewhere around there too. I didn't have, I I had a plan um, through my dad was in the military and then I was able to get some supplemental um, healthcare when I was in college. But once I finished, I didn't really have, there was like a huge gap between like 20 to 25, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even just with any discounted healthcare, it was like, it just didn't, for me, I felt like it didn't make sense. I'm like, I'm pretty healthy. I pay just for annual exams and that's cheaper than paying for insurance. Like I can't afford this monthly right. insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, the hard part is when you're on certain insurance plans too, they only cover so much right. and, or they're not going to cover chiropractic care, which might be something that helps with your issue, or mm-hmm. they're not going to cover acupuncture. They're not going to cover, um, pelvic floor therapy after giving birth. Uh, so, and then, yeah, a lot of people don't have access to the healthcare, so you can advocate for yourself, but if it's coming out of pocket, then that's where it's also easy just to be like, okay, just give me this pill so that I can feel better because that's better than nothing. So I actually just heard about this pelvic floor therapy. Can you give us a little bit more information on that? So pelvic floor therapy, uh, yeah, I'm not an expert on it, but it's basically just therapy to help with all your pelvic floor. So like when you get pregnant, everything down there, it's the muscles, it's everything that surrounds it. Um, everything kind of gets stretched. (laughs) And then when you're having a baby, uh, everything kind of gets messed up. So, uh, and when you have a baby, your bladder's affected, uh, all your muscles down there can be stretched out. It can affect some people like, yeah, they have incontinence. Um, but it has so much more to do with that. It's like lower back pain. Uh, it's kind of all encompassing I've found, cause I've kind of been doing pelvic floor therapy for almost a year now. I started when I was pregnant to try to strengthen my pelvic floor because okay. when you're pushing, a lot of people tell you just to like, like bear down. Right. But mm-hmm. when you actually learn how to control your muscles and feel them, then you can tell, you can help them stretch. You can help them tighten and you kind of have more control over what's going on, which could help prevent tearing, which could help, um, prevent having bladder issues. Uh, mm. it can help with your pushing knowing, yeah, how to be in more in control, uh, and it's something that I highly recommend for all pregnant people yeah. and working people, but it's, yeah, it's not something that's easily accessible. So, um, it's really hard too. It's, it's, you find that the healthcare stuff, even with breastfeeding, mm-hmm. some people need a lactation consultant, but can't afford one. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that's also why I feel like it's really important to have conversations to be supportive of each other's choices. Um, right. because sometimes it might not be your choice. Maybe it mm-hmm. wasn't your choice to formula feed, but you didn't have the support to breastfeed right. and you don't know that person's story. So, mm-hmm. um, it's really important to just have conversations because 
yeah, the, the motherhood community can be pretty nasty sometimes on, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, having yeah. whatever cho- you choose to birth, even your birthing, they're like, oh, you had this. Well, I did it this way. And it's like, birth is unpredictable. There's so mm-hmm. many things out of your control. Like, yeah you can't really judge other people's decisions, uh, when you never know the full story. Yeah. And like you mentioned too, like the tearing, um, issues with just using the restroom, like those are common things that people have. So pelvic, and then with the therapy, it's something you should get before and after most people just do it after. Okay. I recommend before if you can, cause it helps train those muscles so that after they heal even faster. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I definitely agree with you. It's, you know, it's not a way I've had people in my family. It's not their choice to go, you know, the formula route. That's just what, that's the choice they were given or people, you know, often asking someone, well, when are you going to have children? You don't know that it's not their choice not to have children. Maybe they don't want them. Maybe they can't have them. So there needs to be a lot more grace in that area. I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say? So as we're talking about informed consent, what is your advice to someone, especially when you don't have that option with your healthcare that can just be a little bit more an advocate for themselves Mm -hmm. where they start versus just, you know, I, I've went the route of just looking up things online, which is not the best place to go. I wouldn't recommend that to anyone unless you're just looking for minor details, but where do you start? Yeah. I mean, it's hard because you don't want to recommend that to anyone, but at the same time, there's so many resources out there now for us to be able to use that Mm -hmm. could be something. So, um, like with the pelvic floor therapy, now there's so many amazing accounts you can even follow on Instagram. There's like expecting and empowered who they give tips and a lot of free resources and information on there. So, Mm -hmm. um, I say with, with anything, no matter what you're going to your provider for, do your research, look up things, look up, um, look up, all your symptoms, what you're going through. And I know sometimes it can be like a rabbit hole and it can be scary, Yeah. Um, but you can also find a lot of great information that you didn't know was a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think some, sometimes so that you maybe don't go down the Googling hole, um, like, a yeah, Facebook- where is that balance of not obsessing or driving yourself crazy? Right. right? Well, sometimes like a Facebook group, if you're a part of like a Facebook community and maybe you don't want to ask it so people don't know about you, you can usually ask um, the moderators in the group, like, hey, can you ask this question on my behalf? Like, is this normal? Has anybody in here experienced this? What did you do? Um, And then usually people have a lot of information on there. Um, Okay. So, I mean, I think educating yourself is the biggest thing. Um, And if you receive a diagnosis, I would educate that. So if you receive some sort of syndrome or a diagnosis or a medication, whatever it is, educate yourself on it. Like read everything you can about it. Um, because there's so many things that they don't tell you and Mm, your doctor, because they don't have time. Like, I'm not blaming them. It's like, you have this quick appointment with them. If they were going to go over every single thing with you. They could only see a few patients a day. Right. Um, so, I mean, come in equipped, ask questions. Um, one of the biggest things that I tell, um, moms in labor, and you can take it to any appointment, anything that you're in, if they're trying to prescribe you something or, um, trying to get you to do something. If you remember the acronym brain, 
It means ask them, what is the benefit? So what is the benefit of me taking this? What is the benefit of me doing this? What's the risk? What are the risks involved? What are, what are my alternatives? Is there an alternative medication? Is there an alternative natural method? Um, what are my alternatives? What is my intuition telling me? What is my body saying about this? And then what happens if we do nothing? So that's uh, okay. something that I feel like you can kind of take into any field with you, um, any area of healthcare, uh, and even with your own with your own research, what's the benefit of this? What's the risk? What's the alternative? Mm -hmm. What's what, how am I feeling about this? Um, and then what happens if I do nothing? Is this something that's just kind of, kind of heal on its own over time? Or is it something that needs immediate care right now? Um, and that's the same with labor. Like, is the labor going to be fine if we do nothing for right now, if we give it more time, or is it something Mm -hmm. that needs an intervention at this point? So that's, that's definitely something that, but I always say, and just to be curious, ask tons of questions and a lot of like out of curiosity, what, what would happen if, you know, just asking your doctor did, yeah. all of the questions. Right. Yeah. When you, when you mentioned intuition, I automatically think of your friend with the thyroid, right. You know, she could have just had that removed and she was, wait a minute, something else happened. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I want to jump back to really quick when you were talking about how you became a doula and you mentioned midwives and how you, you know, all the benefits that come with being a doula, but what's, what's the the main difference? Because I hear them use interchangeably so many times, and I'm sure it's just a, a bit of ignorance on the differences. So if you can explain that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so midwives are medically trained, okay. uh, to deliver babies. So, okay. uh, I, in different, every state has their own laws. So there's certified nurse midwives, um, which have completed nursing school, Um, and then they go on to receive a master's in midwifery. So they have like six to eight plus years of school and training. Um, there's just certified midwives, which means they went through a certification program, Mm -hmm. um, that didn't involve traditional schooling. Um, they, there's a lot of, which doesn't mean that they're not as credible at all. They're still very highly trained. Mm -hmm. Um, just some, some States it's still illegal to practice as a certified midwife. You have to be a certified nurse midwife in a lot of States. Um, and then doulas. So we don't do anything medical. Um, it's a certification program, which means there's no prior school required. And our training is just completely different. We're not hands-on with delivering babies. Like I don't deliver babies, midwives, midwives deliver babies. They do all the medical stuff. They know what signs to look for. They're going to know all of the norms. Um, I wouldn't even take your blood pressure. I would never do a cervical exam, anything like that. And that's what midwives do. Okay. So it's, it would be accurate to say that. So there are people out there that are having midwives and doulas at the same time. Yeah. Because there's yeah. different things. Okay. Yeah, I had a midwife and a doula for my birthing my daughter. Okay. So we so, work alongside midwives a lot of times, ah. um, or an OB. So I've been at a lot of births in a hospital with a doctor there where I was the doula. And then now I work with a midwife group that, uh, I, yeah, they're there. They have other patients again, they're in and out of the room. Mm-hmm. I'm with you the whole entire time. They know what to look for. They know when things need to be changed. They know how to, they know 
um, how to do an infant well check. They know everything medical. Um, and I know just labor, the labor part. Okay. And then would you say that there are any specific, or maybe there's a, um, a story that you can give us of uh, maybe a scary instance, because obviously you're going through that whole process, something that's maybe going wrong and then how you can, how you've stepped in and kind of helped the mother. Um, so, I mean, if it's anything medical, like I don't step in, right. That's like the, the midwife, but, um, I mean, I've been there for the emotional too, as well, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for me, you know, I was at one birth, but it did end in a C-section. Um, and one of the favorite parts of my job is just acknowledge and validating the feelings that are happening. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, Hey, it's getting to the point you need to have a C-section. It's not what she planned. Um, she didn't want one. So you kind of immediately go inwards and start beating yourself up a little bit. Uh, like I'm weak. This, I, you know, I thought I'd be able to do it. Um, and that's where just learning there's again with birth, there's so much out of your control. Like you can be the strongest woman in the world and still need a C-section. Um, so just kind of being there for that emotional support, reminding you like, you are so strong, like having, but C-section takes a lot of freaking strength. Like you're, you get cut open having a baby being like a C-section. Um, but just reminding them, like, you are so strong. You still are the best mother. You are, um, like, it's okay to grieve that this isn't what you wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, but you get to meet your baby so soon. And, you know, like it's, you just kind of having that reassuring, conversation with them and being there for them afterwards to kind of process through some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't been at a birth that's been like really scary. Right. I felt like my birth kind of got a little scary toward the end. Yeah. Um, when I was birthing my daughter, cause I birthed with a midwife and a doula at a hospital and, um, was in labor for a really long time. And when I was pushing her out, um, the OB who was monitoring the baby, mm-hmm. um, like sent the nurse in and the nurse was like, why aren't you prepping her for a C-section right now? Because the baby kept flatlining and she had a really hard time recovering. Mm-hmm. So a lot of babies, their heart, they have a lot of dips in labor with contractions. And then when you're pushing, you're literally just squeezing your baby. So sometimes their heart rate does kind of drop off and then it comes back up. Um, and midwives know like what it should look like, what the regular pattern is. Um, and OBs do too. Um, but they're kind of more on the safe side of things. Whereas Mm -hmm. midwives, they're still safe. It's a lot of evidence-based. So it's like, what does the research show? What do we know? Um, and what does the data tell us? So they would never put anyone at risk. Um, but the nurse came in and was like, why aren't you prepping her for a C-section right now? And the midwife is like, because the baby's head's right here. She's pushing her out. She's fine. Um, so I really felt like if I would have been with an OB, I would have ended in a C-section. Um, okay. But my midwife knew the evidence. She knew yeah. like what to look for. Yeah. Um, and it was fine, you know? So, uh, and, and studies actually show when you're continuously monitoring babies, 
uh, more interventions happen, more C-sections happen. The research shows that whether rather than intermittent monitoring where you're letting the mom move around and then you're checking baby and you're letting her do stuff and then you're checking baby. When the baby is continually hooked up, you're looking for every little sign, every little anything that they're giving you and more C-sections happen. Whereas in hospitals where they don't, less C-sections happen, but they still have really good birthing outcomes and babies are still healthy and fine. Okay. Yeah. So it really sounds like having your midwife, having your doula, like they're not only, you know, they have that knowledge, but they're also fighting for you, providing that emotional support. So you're birthing a baby, you're in distress. And like you said, you could have ended with having a C-section, but you have someone that's there. That's not in that same distress that can be there fighting for you at the same time. Oh yeah. 100%. And have you had any other instances where, you know, you feel like you're not being heard? Um, so going into every birth, I always know it's not about me. It's 100% about the client. Mm -hmm. Um, the hard part is when the client's not being heard and there's not much I can do. So uh, some people will say that doulas are birth advocates, and I don't say that we're advocates necessarily, but I empower you to advocate for yourself. It's not my job to speak to the doctor on your behalf, like that that actually kind of causes tension in the medical doula Mm -hmm. relationship. Um, So my job is to make sure you have all the information and the knowledge um, and that you can be empowered to speak up for yourself uh, or have your partner. Like I always say, like your partner needs to know they're, they're like your person because when you're in labor, you're emotional and you're going through everything. So it's your partner's job to be like, Hey, just to remind you, we're not doing this. Hey, just to remind you, this is how we're, this is how things are happening. Right. Um, so, but I have been at a birth where the client was just not listened to. And from the beginning, it was really, really hard. They were pushing interventions on her. They were trying to scare her not based on research or data. Mm -hmm. Um, the nurses laughed at her birth plan and I like wanted to cry. I actually did. I went outside and called my husband and was like crying because I'm like, I don't know what to do because I can't go to the nurse on her behalf. I can't, you know, and, and her family wasn't supportive. Um, it was just like, nobody was supportive except for me. And, Um, it was like us against her family and against the hospital staff and just everybody was so rude and she did not feel validated at all. And so I'm trying to help her feel validated, but yet I'm not a part of any decision-making. Um, so it, it was really, really hard. Like I really felt for her and I'm like, this is what's wrong with birth. When I was there, I'm like, this is what's wrong with birth. Yeah. And, and it broke my heart because her experience did not have to be what it was at all. I just needed a minute. <laughs> yeah. <it's> not, <laughs> that's, that's hard. I can't, I've, I mean, I don't have kids, so I can only imagine, but that's, yeah, that's terrifying. And that's, um, that's the thing too. Like, so, um, I mean, so the United States we're in a birthing crisis and one of the biggest reasons why women are dying is they're not being listened to. So they've looked at the hemorrhage rates. They've looked at all this stuff, but it's usually them saying, listen, something's wrong. And I need, I need somebody to come and look at this and they're not. And then something ends up happening. So people are not being listened to. 
And so if you have a provider who does not listen to you, change providers if you're able to. Okay. And then how would you say your work has changed in the midst of the pandemic? Oh, I mean, it's been so different. So at the beginning, so a year ago, I was at the last birth that they allowed in the hospital that I was at. Then they kicked doulas out for a while. Um, So I was off then for three months and then, or maybe even four. And then when we came back, I was eight months pregnant. Oh, wow. So I was only on call for a little while and I didn't get called in. And then I went on maternity leave and then I was off for three months. So I just got back into it in December. Okay. During that time though, I did provide virtual support when they weren't allowing doulas in. So I did have a FaceTime conversation, uh, with a couple that was in, was birthing and I tried to be there for them virtually as much as I could. Um, but I mean, it definitely has changed. So now trying to like give support to families who once they have the baby, they're not allowed any visitors. They're not allowed any outside support. Mm-hmm. Um, they're at the hospital for a couple of days, depending on circumstances, they might be there even longer. Uh, you know, you want to make sure that they're feeling heard, that they're feeling validated. I'm only there for the birth and a little bit after, and then I leave and I'm not allowed back in. So Um, making sure that they know too, like call the nurse for anything you need, make sure that you guys are set up. Um, and, and I mean, it, it just has changed everyone's circumstances. I feel like have changed. Um, our baby actually ended up going to the NICU because she inhaled meconium, which is when the baby poops in utero and she inhaled it. And so it was in her lungs. And so she ended up in the NICU for a week And we, that was hard in the pandemic because we couldn't go see her at the same time. My husband and I had to take turns seeing her. So we weren't able to be together as a family for a week and that was heartbreaking. And so just kind of really being sensitive to the different families, like moms going into birth right now their kids at home don't get to come visit the baby in the hospital. They don't get to see their kids at home for a couple of days. So everybody's giving up something. So like just making sure that you're there for them as much as possible. And then before I leave, making sure that they have everything that they need, um, seeing if there's anything I can get them or, you know, anything I can do for them and letting them know the hospital staff is there to help take care of you. So take advantage of it. Um, but I mean, it's definitely changed, uh, People have to get tested before a doula is allowed in the room. If you test positive, you don't get that doula support. Mm. I know at the beginning of the pandemic last year, they're making people birth alone. They weren't even allowed to have their partners in there with them. And they're making people birth alone. And that that's just, that's against human rights. <laughs> like yeah. you, you should not ever have to birth alone. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely changed and hoping you know, that things start to get back to normal soon. Normal, Right. And then, so outside of the pandemic, uh, pre COVID, what was your, what is the time frame usually like when you're, you know, with, with parents going through that whole process, when you're staying with them post delivery, how long are you usually still remaining with them? Or like, what's the average time frame? Yeah. So once they go into labor, I'm there through the entire labor and delivery. And then just a couple of hours after, 
um, making sure that if they're breastfeeding, I can help initiate that, making sure that they're getting food, that they're getting nourished, that they have everything they need, um, making sure that the hospital staff knows their preferences for post-baby procedures mm-hmm. um, and that they're following those. Mm-hmm. Uh, so where I work now is a little bit different than a private doula. So I work with a group, as I said earlier. Um, so we leave after the couple of hours when I worked as a private doula, I would leave, but then I'd have a postpartum follow-up with them. Uh, and then they could always text, call me anytime with any questions. Now the group that I work with, they have a one week wellness visit with the midwives. So, um, we don't really do a postpartum follow-up because the midwives are going to have more answers if there's anything deeper going on. Mm-hmm. So we always try to make sure that they're scheduling their one week follow-up with the midwives to get anything that they need. Do you miss that part of having I like do. the post-interaction? Yeah. So I miss cause where I'm with now, we don't have a lot of pre-interaction either. We have a meet and greet, which now it's been all virtual, mm-hmm. um, where they can come meet the doulas that work that I work with and get to know us a little bit and then describe what our program is, what we do. Um, and then when I was a private doula, like I'd meet with people one-on-one, you get to know them, you kind of build that relationship. Um, and, and I definitely miss that. I miss that a lot, but where I'm at now, I have a schedule, which fits for my life right now. When I was a private doula, I'm on call 24 seven, like you're, you don't know anybody's going to go into labor. Right. And now I have a schedule. I'm on call two days a week. I can plan my podcast. I can plan childcare for my daughter. If I get called in, Mm -hmm. I can plan uh, a little bit more. So it definitely works out for me. They each have their pros and cons. (laughs) So, um, but I mean, I, I love the doula work. So yeah. Awesome. And then can, are there any, uh, common misconceptions that you would tell people out there just as far as birthing doulas go things that you're hearing that you're, you're just in your head. Like that is not true. I, I feel like all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I, yeah, I could talk about that forever. Like, how much time do you have? <laughs> oh my God. Um, I think we covered one of the biggest misconceptions. People think that doulas are midwives, which we're not. Okay. Uh, people think that you only need a doula if you're having a home birth or if you're having an unmedicated birth, mm-hmm. they're like, Oh, I'm going to get an epidural. I don't need a doula. That was definitely my understanding. Birth. Yeah. No. So mm-hmm. there's so many things we can do in epidurals. You can still change positions, which is going to help bring the baby down. You still need emotional support, um, right. and informational support. So, uh, there's still so much to do in the case of an epidural, um, with a doula. Um, there's a lot of things with birthing and with labor And a lot of them are really old practices that aren't based on anything. Um, Like one of the things I hear is you can't eat and drink during labor. And when I hear that, it it like pisses me off because being in labor is the equivalent of doing a 50 mile hike. And you expect someone to do that with no food or nourishment. Um, So the reason, the reason why there's a rule with no eating or drinking during labor is in case you have to be put under general anesthesia in a C-section, which they don't use general anesthesia anymore. It's a very, very rare case that they would use it. And in the case that they use it, they put a tube down your throat so you won't choke on anything. So Mm -hmm. there's no reason that you can't eat and drink during labor. That's right. And you should be able to do what your body feels. 
Um, mm-hmm. And throwing up is a normal part of labor. When your hormones are changing, you mm-hmm. might throw up. And it's actually better if you have something in there versus just stomach bile from ice chips. Yeah. Um, so that's like one when people hear that or people are like, oh, my water broke, but I never went into labor. I'm like, that, that's also very rare, but most places will say, oh, if your water breaks and you don't go into labor within two hours, come in. So you're actually not giving your body a chance to go into labor. Uh, research shows that yes, once your water breaks, you have a higher risk of infection, but where the higher risks come in are from vaginal exams, um, at the doctor. So, um, the best way to reduce the chance of infection is to reduce vaginal exams and in traditional labor, they check you a lot. Um, whereas there's really no need to, um, so there's just, I mean, there's so many things like failure to progress, just so many things. So one of the biggest resources I say for birthing people to get educated and informed is evidence-based birth. They have a podcast, they have a website, they have an Instagram account, follow them because they post, it's not, and the thing is, it's not, it's not, um, what's the word I'm trying to look for? Uh, opinion. There's nothing opinion-based. It's all research. These are studies that have been done. Research shows um, you benefit from eating and drinking during labor. Um, You benefit from being able to move freely during labor. You benefit from being able to move during an epidural. Uh, There's research-based scientific studies done to help empower you and educate you. Um, So I think looking at hospital policies, Mm -hmm. if you can choose where you're birthing, look at their C-section rate, look at the hospital policies. Um, some hospitals still make you birth on your back and there's no evidence to support that at all. Um, so just kind of, again, going back to empowering and educating yourself and the evidence-based birth podcast website, um, all of that is such an amazing resource. Okay. Yeah. I think I'm, as I'm hearing you explain it all, I'm thinking to myself, aside from birth, like we need life doulas because I'm running down just the things personally where emotional support is so needed when you're fighting for yourself you're you know advocate for yourself people are not listening to you so I feel like there's so many areas where we just need like we need doulas for just day-to-day life not just for birthing yes please well I think the doula field really is expanding though because there's labor doulas which is what I am there's postpartum doulas which will actually come stay with Mm. you postpartum Um, there's, there's death doulas that help you through the grieving process. There's abortion doulas. There's, um, just everything kind of in the, in the birthing field, but the death doula was kind of the newer thing that I heard. And it doesn't have to necessarily be around pregnancy. Mm. There can be any death in the family. You can have a doula who kind of is there for you to help take care, um, and that even encompasses like emotional needs, cooking, cleaning, doing things around the house for you. So you can just really sit with your grief and, and work through. So, um, I feel like the doula field is expanding. So maybe, maybe life doulas is next. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Cause I, yeah, I think it's something I always have felt we needed in the healthcare industry is that communication so as I mentioned, like I have the vertigo and they say, go see a neuro, go see an ENT or do this and do that. There's no communication between the doctors, you know? Right. So when you have someone that's giving you that emotional support, helping you, you know, and pushing or not pushing you, but providing the emotional support, 
maybe can help you with that communication. It goes a long way because you're trying to figure things out on your own. And I can only imagine, you know, some of the things that you went through with your birth and you have this knowledge where people that don't have any type of understanding mm-hmm. me, for example, like, as I said, I don't have kids. So I'm, I, w- I have no idea what's going on. So I think the information you're providing is great for, you know, people that just aren't, don't have children, just good mm-hmm. things to know. So when that time comes that you are prepared. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I could use a life doula. <laughs> <laughs> can't, can't we all? <laughs> I need one. <laughs> yeah. Somebody come help me. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned too, that your just overall conversations that you have with the mother and the father, are there any particular things or bits of advice that you would give to dads that are listening, that might be listening as far as like how they can be better advocates to provide emotional support for the mom? Yeah. So super exciting. I'm actually working on a partner guide book this year um, that is going to come out. That's very, very simple, easy to understand. There's pictures in it. So it's not like this big, long book. It's short and simple. So, I mean, as the partner, if you guys can take a childbirth education course together, I would do that. Um, so Mm -hmm. you can learn and then, um, really going over a birth plan together. So a birth plan things normally don't go as planned. So a birth plan is more to educate you on your options and for you to figure out what you want and what you want to do. And as the partner, your role is to support, support them in that. Mm -hmm. So making sure that you know, all of that, that, you know, your partner's wishes, that you know what they want and that you're not afraid to speak up the, I mean, the hospital staff is there to serve you guys. Mm -hmm. Um, you're paying your doctor. Uh, so making sure that you're, you're on the same page that you know how to advocate for her. Some dads have a really hard time seeing, seeing their partner in pain um, and how to handle that. Sometimes it's a lot emotionally for them. So just really trying to words of encouragement go such a long way. Um, okay. Educate yourself on maybe a couple different birthing positions. And then if you don't know what to say for like words of affirmation, mm-hmm. Google it, like be like, what can, what can I say to help during labor? And just even like, you got this, you can do it. You're so strong. Yeah. Uh, that contractions over like helping them just really, um, just really get through it. Uh, and even if they have an epidural and maybe they're not really feeling the contractions, just kind of being there to serve them what can I get for you right now? Or knowing when they need to rest, be like, okay, you have your epidural. Now's the time to get as much rest as you can. Cause once that baby comes out, you're not going to be resting anymore. So, um, you know, (laughs) like just rest, relax. Let me know if you need anything. Mm -hmm. Um, so just really trying to, um, be there for them. And then knowing that you are their ultimate advocate, Mm -hmm. um, in any situation while you're there. Yeah. And then with the pandemic, since there's a lot of mothers that are not able to have their partners there in the room, or you said that was more in the beginning of the pandemic, right? Yeah. I I don't think as much now. Okay. Did you have to have any, or did you have any interaction with the partner, like knowing they weren't in there as far as just helping them? They, they don't know what's going on any emotional support on that end. I didn't, um, because at the time partners weren't allowed, doulas weren't allowed. So I wasn't in there either. Um, which sucks, but, um, I mean, that's where FaceTime is your friend, you know, Yeah. we had a zoom conference set up for my birth. So my mom, my mother-in-law, my sisters, 
were all on the Zoom call. My niece right. watching my entire birth. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So, um, which was actually perfect because they weren't crowding the room and I right. hardly noticed they were there, but yet they felt like they were there with me yeah. um, throughout, mm-hmm. throughout all of it. So setting up something like that is also helpful if you mm-hmm. want other loved ones to, to be a part of it. And is it, does it just depend on the area or the hospital as to how many visitors people can normally have in the room for birth? Yeah. It also okay. depends on the season. Cause I know like here in Chicago during the winter, we have flu season. And so they limit visitors cause they don't want tons okay. of people coming in and out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so it depends on the area, your hospital policies, all of that. Mm-hmm. Obviously right now, I don't think any hospitals <laughs> are allowing any visitors. Okay. Okay. Outside of like your partner or your one support person. So, um, but yeah, most places do. I mean, I don't know, like I was talking to my husband and he said for his sister's birth, he's like, there was like 10 of us in the room and nobody said anything, not for the actual birth. Like, yeah, they went in to say hi during COVID. No, 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 no. Before. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Most places do have policies in place. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's always good just to look, check, keep up to date with your hospital policies, especially with the pandemic. Cause I know mm-hmm. this last year things changed all the time. They're like, we're not letting doulas in. Oh, doulas are back in. Oh, partners can't come in. Partners can come in, but if the mom tests positive, then they can't. Oh wait, they can come so there's in. There's daily like, changes. Oh my and, gosh. Yeah, hourly. <laughs> yeah. So now it seems like things are kind of established, but again, you never know. Like yeah. it's, things can literally change the day you go, like the last birth that I was at before they kicked doulas out, we didn't know that we weren't going to be allowed. I was at this birth and being told doulas are no longer allowed. And they were almost going to make me leave the birth, but they let me stay. And Mm. we had just found out. And so did that couple who was birthing. They're like, Oh my gosh, doulas aren't allowed anymore. Can you still stay with us? Like what's going on? Um, so, I mean, they didn't even know until they were in labor and I didn't know I was at the hospital with them. And then they were like, okay, like, this is the last birth. And then, yeah, that was in March. We weren't allowed back in until August. So, um, yeah, things definitely do change. So just try to stay up to date with, with whatever your hospital's policies are. Okay. And then, uh, lastly, I just want to ask you to, you can relate this to your birth healthcare in general, but what type of things I usually ask people, what advice they'd give their younger self, but maybe what advice you'd give to Elizabeth, just pre healthcare knowledge, what things you would tell yourself when you were stressing out or not having, you know, advocates in in your corner? I think the biggest thing for me is to be more assertive and confident. So I'm very much a peacemaker. I hate confrontation and I would consider disagreeing with my doctor confrontation, or I would consider like, if I went to a healthcare provider that I didn't agree with, they'd be like, okay, go to the front and make your next appointment. And I'm like, okay. And then I would just like leave and not make it instead of being like, oh yeah, I probably won't see you again. You know, like (laughs) actually sticking up for myself. I'd be like, I'll just never show up again. Like, I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, just kind of just being more assertive and confident. I've always been a pushover until I feel like the last few years I've learned how to stand up for myself. Um, And that's so important. It's so important. And it's not rude for you to stand up for yourself. It's not inconsiderate for you to stand up for yourself. Um, It's actually, it's one of the most empowering things you can do. And it's not like you're being an a-hole to these other people. It's you 
having the right to explore other options, having the right to trust your body, having the right to maybe put your trust in a different provider. Um, you are your biggest advocate. Nobody else is going to step in for you. Um, you know, Mm -hmm. like my husband's not going to come down to the doctor's office and tell my doctor, (laughs) like, you know, like, no, she doesn't want to do this. It's like, no, like, he might, you're his wife. He might just come down there. <laughs> he would. No, I feel like he's the one that's helped me. He'd be like, babe, yeah. no, like go tell them. No, he is your life doula right now. <laughs> he actually is my life doula. You're yeah, right. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I would just tell her to be way more confident in, in myself, in mm-hmm. the knowledge that I know I have. Right. Um, and to just kind of be more, more assertive, not let people walk walk on you, whether that's in healthcare or just life in general. Right. Okay. And then of course, um, we mentioned the beginning, I'll have it in the notes of the podcast as well, but you have miraculous mamas and that is your website, your Instagram, and you can check out your podcast wherever people are consuming podcasts. Yeah. But if you can give us a little bit more information too, what are people going to hear when they listen to miraculous mamas? Oh my gosh. Um, so the whole purpose of the podcast is to empower and educate women through storytelling and education. Um, so we bring on a lot of experts. Uh, I just interviewed the formula mom who talks all about formula feeding. Uh, we have on breastfeeding experts. We have on, um, people who talk about infertility, people to talk about preconception health. Um, we've had neonatologists on to talk about at the moment of conception, the fetal development, all these things that I know nothing about, um, (laughs) hormone experts. And then we also just have stories. We have birth stories. We have stories of, I mean, loss and sadness and miscarriage and stories of hope. And so it's just, it's a lot of fun just to kind of bring people together. I feel like every single episode I'm learning something new and, um, And I always ask people to tell me what they want to listen to. Like, what do you guys want to learn? What do you, what are you finding? So we'll talk about, um, even like birth defects or potential, um, like what's the benefits of acupuncture and labor or what's the benefits of, if there are any of encapsulating your placenta. So, um, just, I mean, yeah, it's kind of just a combination of, education and stories. Sometimes it's serious, but we try to keep it more fun. Um, and I mean, I feel like, cause the season I'm in is like the postpartum season. There's been a lot of like postpartum type podcasts uh-huh. of women sharing their journeys going through that. So yeah, I mean, we, we have a lot of fun with it. It's been really, I'm sure you can attest. I just feel like whenever you podcast with anybody, you always learn something new and, Definitely. Um, and you just, you're just constantly growing. So I feel like that's why podcasting is so fun because you're growing right along with your audience. Right. Yeah. I definitely agree. I I think that like, I love meeting new people just in general, but there's a different experience that goes along with it because you know that you're asking questions, obviously that you want to know, but there's just like general things out there. And there's so many, and I'm sure you can agree. There's so many conversations you can just have with your friends or your family where you're thinking, I wish I could just take all this information I just learned and then just share with everyone. And then you kind of get a chance to do that, obviously with podcasting. Mm -hmm. I know. I know. I'm like, I wish I was recording this conversation (laughs) right? and trying to remember everything the way that they explain it to you. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. 
it has been amazing having you on the podcast. There's so much information that I've learned and I hope the audience is taking so many things down. I'm over here with my little notes, just writing down a lot myself too, and things that I can take with me and share with my family and friends. Obviously we have the podcast here for them to listen to, but it's been really great. And I'm really glad that I was able to have you on. Yeah. Thank you again. So, so much for having me. It's been so fun. Thank you so much. And I hope that maybe we can have you on again soon. You have so many different areas that you can cover and so much information. And I love the way you're just able to deliver the message. Yeah. Thank you. Anytime. I would love to.